Boaz went to the city gate and sat there until the close relative he had mentioned passed by. Come here, friend, and sit down. The man went over and sat down. Then Boaz brought ten of the elders of the town together. Sit down here. Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I'll buy it. When you buy the land from Naomi, you must also marry Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's wife. That way, the land will stay in the dead man's name. I can't buy back the land. If I did, I might harm what I can pass on to my own sons. I cannot buy back the land, so buy it yourself. Long ago in Israel, when people traded or bought back something, one person took off his sandal and gave it to the other person. This was proof of ownership in Israel. So the close relative took off his sandal. Today you are witnesses. You have seen that I have bought the land from Naomi. I have bought all the property that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also taken Ruth, who is the Moab, to become my wife. She is Malon's widow. I have decided to marry her so the dead man's name will stay on his property. Now his name won't disappear from the family line or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who had many children and built up the people of Israel. May you become powerful in the district of Etherath and famous in Bethlehem. As Tamar gave birth to Judah's son Perez, may the Lord give you many children through Ruth. May your family be great like his. Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife. By God's gracious gift, she conceived and had a son. Praise the Lord who gave you this grandson. May he become famous in Israel. He will give you new life and will take care of you in your old age. Ruth is better for you than seven sons because she has given birth to your grandson. Naomi took the boy, held him in her arms, and cared for him. The neighbors gave the boy his name, saying, This boy was born for Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. This is the family history of Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram, who was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon, who was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, who was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Ruth chapter 4. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn there. And um, this last chapter here of the book that we've been studying for a few weeks. You know, just a few weeks before the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th in 1776, the Second Continental Congress got together and said, we need a proclamation of prayer. We need to call the colonies to pray. And in part, that proclamation said this, 
in times of impending calamity and distress, it becomes the indispensable duty of these heretofore free and happy colonies publicly to acknowledge the overruling providence of God, desirous at the same time to have people of all ranks and degrees duly impressed with the solemn sense of God's superintending providence. The Congress, therefore, do earnestly recommend that Friday the 17th day of May next be observed by the said colonies as a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And to the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, obtain his pardon and forgiveness. Amazing words. Now, seven years later, the Revolution and War had concluded, and it was just a, a few months before the Treaty of Paris was to be signed that officially ended uh, the war. Uh, George Washington wrote a letter to a friend, and he said this. He said, glorious indeed has been our contest. Glorious if we consider the prize for which we have contended, and glorious in its issue. But in the midst of our joys, I hope we shall not forget that to divine providence is to be ascribed the glory and the praise. Many of the, the founding fathers had this acute awareness that God was providentially working in the birthing of our nation. That there was a God in heaven who sovereignly was, was fulfilling his purposes and his plans. And a few weeks ago we talked about this idea of the, the providence of God. And by providence of God we're talking about that God has a plan for his creation and he's, through that plan, guiding and directing through his loving wisdom, that plan to its purposeful fulfillment and bringing him ultimate glory. In other words, God is not a mere spectator in heaven. He's not up there biting his fingernails, wondering what humanity is going to do now. Like, uh, good night, they're, they're what? Ah, oh, God, there's no emergencies in heaven. He doesn't push the panic button. Why? Because he's providentially working out his plan. And it doesn't remove the, the free moral choices that humanity makes, that we make in our own life. Somehow God sovereignly works through all of that to accomplish his stated purposes. Providence means that God is providing everything needed to sustain, to govern the unfolding of his ordered world the way he has planned it, the way he's desired it for his ultimate glory. Now, if the book of Ruth has taught us anything, it has taught us that indeed this idea of the providential working of God is true. In the lives of real people, uh, real people who made some real mistakes, the book of Ruth begins with sin and disobedience as Naomi and her husband Elimelech leave the, the land of blessing of Judah and go to the, the pagan land of Moab. They uproot their boys who end up marrying against the will of God, against the, the ordinances of God's law, marrying Moabite women. And by the end of chapter 1, you see the results of this sin and disobedience. You've got three graves and three widows. And after about 10 years or so, one of those widows, Naomi, says, I'm going to come back, but I'm going to be coming back empty. 
I went away full, but now I'm coming back empty. And her heart was embittered against life, against God. But one of those daughter-in-laws who had married one of her sons, Ruth, was committed to her. I'll go where you go. I'll lodge where you lodge. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. And Ruth went back with her. And as they come back to Bethlehem, to the land of blessing, to that little town of Bethlehem, where Naomi was from, the people looked at Naomi and says, is this Naomi? The one whose name meant pleasant? The delightful one? And she says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, a word that meant bitter. For she said, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Three widows, three graves, two come back to the land of promise, and they're destitute in poverty. In that time, in that culture, destitute widows. They had nowhere to turn. Ruth, um, careful to take care of her mother-in-law, dedicated, true to her promise to go where you go, live how you live, your God will be my God. She gets up that morning, back in Bethlehem, it was the beginning of the barley harvest, and she knew if we're going to survive, I've got to go glean in the fields. It's the only way we're going to survive, to have food. So she goes to a field to glean. Um, we have a couple community groups and, and individuals who are sponsoring some Afghan families here. Uh, recently, an Afghan family of six, of parents and four kids, have come here to Winchester, and a couple of our groups have uh, sponsored them. They, they've provided a home. They provide food and clothing and and uh, just the basic necessities of life to get them started. Uh, two more families are, are needing those things. And, um, Ruth and Ruth and Naomi didn't have that. They come back with nothing, and so Ruth heads to the fields so she can glean some, some grain so that they can maybe make some bread and have some food and su- be sustained one more day. But as luck would have it, she just so happened to glean in the field of a very wealthy but kind and humble man by the name of Boaz. And it wasn't just because Boaz was kind and, and uh, considerate and gracious and very wealthy that was exciting. For Naomi, when she found out it was Boaz, she was excited because he was a, a close relative. It was exciting because according to the Old Testament law, the book of Moses, the law of Moses, there was a responsibility of the nearest kinsman to um, help provide, help redeem, help take care of family members that were in this kind of a distress. The, the law provided for that. Boaz was a, was a close relative. He was a goel, was the Hebrew term, a kinsman redeemer. He was a goel. Would he redeem? Would he step up? They found out, as we saw last week in chapter 3, he's perfectly willing to. He would love to redeem Ruth and take care of Naomi. But there was a problem. There was a closer relative. There was someone who had the first right of refusal. And chapter 4, he has to confront them and find out what would happen. What we just heard and as read here, chapter 4, it begins with uh, Boaz going to the gate of the city to wait for this man to come. The gate of the city was, that was where people typically would transact their business, their legal matters. 
at the gate of the city. It's where um, you could gather the leaders of the city to witness these events, and that's exactly what he does. And here comes the, that nearest relative through the city gate, and Boaz sees him, and he calls to him in chapter 4, verse 1, turn aside here, friend, sit down here. Now, in the original Hebrew, it's, the word friend isn't there. It's really just a, a two words that simply mean so-and-so. The man in this story, in, in fact, in a chapter where there's a whole bunch of names, as we'll see, that are listed here, the one guy who's conspicuously absent and not named is this, this nearest relative, this, this nearest Goel who could redeem and um, uh, set free Ruth and Naomi from their life of poverty. Uh, come here, so-and-so. Um, and then he gathers, it says in verse 2, witnesses, uh, elders of the city, ten men. Now, according to the law, only two are required. But Boaz, never to uh, miss an opportunity, thorough as he must have been, got ten of the elders of the city together to witness the event. And so he confronts the, um, that nearest goel, that nearest relative, so-and-so. And he tells him, uh, Naomi, verse 3, who has come back from the land of Moab has to sell a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here, and before the elders of my people, and if you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one else but you to redeem it, and I'm after you. Um, this is just the way things were done. And again, it was built into the Old Testament law, this opportunity to redeem the land. And it sounded perfectly logical and good for this close relative to do it. He'd acquire a piece of land. He's going to make some money off of it. He's going to uh, till it and farm it and, and uh, take the proceeds off of it. Uh, yes, after 50 years, the, the, the year of Jubilee, that type of a property would be reverted back, according to the Old Testament law, to the original owners. But, hey, he'd long be dead since then. He can make a lot of money off that land. Sure, I'll redeem it. Why wouldn't I? And that's when uh, Boaz um, puts in the zinger. Um, uh, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must, it says in verse 5, acquire Ruth, the Moabitess. Now, I don't know if he said that with any real inflection, or, or I, I, I like to think he said Ruth, the, the Moabitess. <laughs> you know, because the Jews had, didn't want anything to do with Moabite people. They were enemies. Moab had done them dirty in their history. Uh, when you acquired this land, and b by the way, that was the first thing that, uh, that Boaz talked about was redeeming the land. The guy's willing to do it. Uh, obviously, Naomi had had a piece of land that she'd had to sell in the poverty. Probably her husband Elimelech did before they had actually, uh, 10 years before when they went to Moab, he had to get rid of this property but it was the responsibility of the near relative to buy it back and give it back. He was willing to do that, but a, 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 a Moabite woman? <laughs> and then, of course, that would mean uh, probably a certain amount of shame, but it would also mean raising up a child and supporting this Moabite widow and child. And 
and eventually the land will revert back to that child. I mean, it's a a losing proposition for him, which he said in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. So redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption. I cannot redeem it. And he gives Boaz that right. Well, the custom, it says in verse 7, in those times was to, in this kind of a legal matter, was to remove a sandal, give it to another, um, and so in verse 8, the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today, I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Kilian and Malin. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malin, to be my wife, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from the brothers or from the count of his birthplace. You are witnesses from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Once again, we see Boaz and his careful understanding of the Old Testament law, the law of leveret marriage, as we saw last week from Deuteronomy. He's going to do what the Old Testament law prescribed. He's willing to do it. He wants to do it. He loves this Moabite girl, Ruth, and now he has the opportunity to do it. And all the people, it says in verse 11, who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord shall give you this young woman now as much as i'd like to go into take time and go into explain an explanation about judah and tamar because they're mentioned here i won't take the time it's a sordid story it's a horrid story in genesis chapter 38 judah being one of the 12 sons of of jacob who tamar was his daughter-in-law and the whole mess of that story and she didn't have a child and her husband had died and and judah's on a business trip and he sees and she dresses up as a harlot and he sees this cute little thing and he she's playing the role of a harlot and he has a little one night tryst with her and and a child is born well that child is perez isn't it amazing may may you may your house be like the house of perez the woman said whom tamar bore to judah It's just a little reminder by the author here that God does things that we don't necessarily would consider doing. That that in this line, in this genealogy, was this sordid story of, of Judah and Tamar. And now, as we see, is this also weird story of a Boaz marrying a Moabite girl And to that union comes a little baby boy. Look at verse 14. A little baby boy is born and the party begins the celebration. The women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. May his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life, a a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better and is better to you than seven sons has given birth 
to him. It's like seven sons. I mean, that, that, that's, that's like your, your, your perfect family back in ancient Judaism, right? Seven, the number of perfection, and you got seven sons. Sorry, gals and you who just have girls in your family. But in ancient Judaism, that was it. Seven sons, and they said, put it all aside. You can't beat a Moabite young girl, a widow from Moab, who loved like Ruth and loved her mother-in-law. She is better than the seven sons that she's given Naomi, this restorer of life, the sustainer in her old age. And verse 16, such a lovely picture. Naomi, the grandmother, takes the child, lays him in her lap, becomes his nurse, and the neighbor women, again, verse 17, gave him a name, said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they call him Obed, meaning, the word means servant. And then our author who writes this book adds this little phrase. It's like he's saying, and guess what? He's the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. See, this is where it's all building towards. It, it, Ruth, remember, takes place in the time of the judges. Last verse of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Like Elimelech, who leaves in the land of blessing and disobedience to God. He's doing what is right in his own eyes. There's no king. But in the midst of the darkness and the disobedience and the sin and the, the, this, this time of the judges, there's hope. There's bright hope. Because, you see, God providentially worked that in sin and in spite of the disobedience of Naomi and Elimelech, one of their sons married a, a Moabite gal, a pagan Moabite girl, who now factors in to the genealogy of the king, David. In a time when there was no king in Israel, God sovereignly and providentially worked it out that there would be a coming king from this very lineage. It's a wonderful lineage. We won't again take the time, but Matthew chapter 1 records this lineage to the Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, Jesus Christ. In that lineage was Tamar, who gave this birth to Perez, that son, and, and, and this Moabite widow, Ruth, Oh, and there's also evidence that Boaz's mom, and probably grandmother, because there was gaps in the, in the genealogies, was none other than, hold on to your seat, was none other than Rahab the harlot when the Jews came and conquered Jericho and the walls came tumbling down except Rahab's family, the harlot, who is the mother or probably the grandmother of Boaz. Isn't it amazing how God is weaving all these things? Who could do such a thing? How could this happen? God. God does that. And, and as Naomi held that little baby in her lap, I, she had to be thinking back, remembering the rubble of her ruined life and how in sin and disobedience they had left the place of blessing their sons had married Moabite pagan women, and then they died in that land. And, and they come back, and they're in poverty, all this, this sad, sordid story, and yet here she is holding that little baby and praising God like, 
she could have agreed with the apostle paul when he wrote in romans chapter 8 that he works all he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose how could this happen i'm sure that must have been thinking going through her mind it happens because god in his providential love and care was working out the plan god made it happen and as the unknown author once wrote, my life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. And I cannot choose the colors he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. The dark threads are needful in the weaver's skillful hand. They're as needful as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern that he has planned. So not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to flow will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. Folks, there's been things that have happened in your life, in my life, that we just probably can't figure out. Why did that happen? Why did this take place? But God knows the reasons why. And when that loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly, that canvas is going to get unrolled. And we'll spend time in heaven, if we know Jesus as our Savior, and we'll be celebrating the reasons why. It'll be made known as clear as could be. Now, God in his grace can unroll the canvas so far in our life, and we can kind of in this life even see the reasons. Have you... Have you experienced the providential care and working of God in your life where you can actually say, man, that was God. How did that happen? Um, you lost your job. And you say, why, Lord? I mean, of all the times, why? And then, you know, the body of Christ shows up. Your small group starts showing up. You got a check comes in your mail. Like, where did that come from? And and uh, then at some point you get the job that's even better than what you had and you look back and you like Naomi holding that little child and you look back and say look if, if I had to do this all again <laughs> I would because man have I learned about how gracious God is it can be as mundane as as uh, driving down the road you're late for an appointment you're all upset and then you get a flat tire now, so now you're, you're going to miss the appointment altogether, and you're pulled off, you're fixing the flat tire, you're grousing and grumbling, only to learn that just down the road, a few, few miles, is a horrid accident, and you would have been right in the midst of it if you hadn't had that flat tire. Mundane things. The, the canvas gets rolled back a little bit, and, and you get one of those aha moments like, oh, so that's what you were doing, God. You have that nagging injury, and... You finally end up going to the doctor to take care of it. And yet, in the midst of the test, you find out totally, un, totally unrelated to that little nagging injury, they have found a tumor, but in a timely ma manner, and it's excised, and you thank God, like the, the canvas got unrolled a little bit, and you, you see his providential care working. You have a child who's lived in rebellion against God. For 10 years, they've gone headlong like a prodigal. And you pray and you pray and you scratch your head and you ask, why, Lord? I mean, all the other kids, we raised them the same. I mean, they're serving you. Why this? And then 
somehow by God's divine providential care, that child comes to faith in Jesus or turns back to Jesus and becomes a, a radical witness for, for the Lord and, and is able to talk with people that you would have never been able to, they would have never been able to if they hadn't gone through that life experience. And yet, there are all those things that we never seem to have an answer why for. The loss of a loved one. Why, Lord? Um, I remember my grandfather, after my grandmother died suddenly, and I had stopped by, I was in college, I stopped by to see him, and he sat there, and he just kind of shook his head, and he said, five more years. I just asked the Lord for five more years, and I didn't get it. Um, maybe uh, an accident happens and, and leaves you an invalid and you wonder, why, Lord? I was in the prime of my career. Now I need government aid. A mistake made by a, an accountant uh, or your financial planner. Now you're in financial ruin. No mistake of your own, but you wonder, it's life-changing. And you go back to that as you live your life and you can't understand why this happened. The, the canvas isn't fully unrolled, but the, but the weaver is weaving his plan and somehow in some way, when we're up in glory, it'll all be shown. We're gonna have a lot of aha moments in heaven, folks, as we gather together and we will see what God has done. And see, he's simply calling us and that's the point of the story of Ruth. He's simply calling us Trust me, I'm a sovereign God and I'm providentially working out my, my plan of love for your life. Trust me, it's ultimately for my glory and for your good. Paul said it this way when he said, momentary light afflictions are producing an eternal weight of glory. Trust God. That's the message of Ruth. Naomi and Ruth, bitterness, sin, widowhood, loss. And then it ends with fullness as God blessed them. The canvas was rolled back this far. Now, Naomi, as she held, holds that little baby, she doesn't, we can't see the future the author unrolled it a little farther, so we see Obed and Jesse and King David. But it's even unrolled further. I think God, the ultimate author of the book of Ruth, has something else in mind as well. He's doing much more. Who would have thought that eventually this, this former pagan Moabite woman who was married in rebelling against God's law, came back to a land that was not her own, only to marry the richest guy in Bethlehem, a godly man, and give birth to a little son, Obed. In the line of David, ultimately, the line of Jesus Christ. Who would have thought? But God did that. You see, Boaz is a, is a type of Christ. It's built in, I think, to this passage by divine design. Boaz prefigures Christ. A type, when we talk about a type, a type is a person, event, institution in the Old Testament that by divine design 
foreshadows or illustrates something in the New Testament. Boaz is that prefigurement, like Adam. Adam is a type of Christ, or, or Joseph, the story of Joseph is a type of Christ. A, an institution like the sacrificial system or the, the Passover feast, uh, the tabernacle, they, they prefigure something that's by divine design. Um, an event like um, the, the raising of the brazen serpent in the, in the wilderness is a prefigurement of, it's a, it's a type of the, of the cross of Jesus Christ. Boaz prefigures the coming of the ultimate kinsman redeemer, the ultimate savior. Now, for Boaz, in order to function as that goel, as that kinsman redeemer, there are four requirements that had to be met. Uh, he had to be a relative. And fortunately, he was a close relative. Um, the redeemer, the goel, had to be able to afford the redemption price. And good thing, Boaz was a wealthy man and he could afford it. Thirdly, he had to be willing to do it. And of course, Boaz was more than willing to do it. But the fourth requirement is that he not, had not to be redeemed himself. A slave could not redeem another slave. You had to be free to do that redemption, and Boaz was. God, in his sovereign plan, used Boaz as a prefigurement of, of Jesus. Uh, Ruth and Naomi were destitute. It was impossible for themselves to better themselves out of their poverty, out of their situation. They needed a goel. And the Bible is very clear that every one of us born into this world is born in sin. Um, that's what the Bible says. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are incapable of solving that sin problem. We need somebody to redeem us. Jesus Christ stepped from his throne in glory. I'll be the redeemer. Now, did he meet the requirements? Was he a close relative? Well, the first requirement is met in, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. He stepped from the throne of glory, took on full humanity. He became, according to the book of Hebrews, our brother. He was our kinsman, fully identified as human while being fully God at the same time. What about the second requirement? Could he afford it? Well, according to 1 Peter, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were redeemed with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We couldn't redeem ourselves, but he could afford it. His blood was precious. And it satisfied God's righteous demands. It's the only thing that would. There's no amount of good works, no amount of money that we could pay, and no amount of, uh, of religious activities that we could do to ever get ourselves out of the bondage of sin. But Jesus could afford it. He was our near relative. He was our goel. He was our only hope because we can't redeem ourselves. Did he fulfill the third requirement? He certainly did. Was he willing to do it? According to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life. That's why he came, 
He stepped from the throne and he willingly took on humanity. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly breathed his last as he died in us. Oh, at any moment, even that final gasp, he could have stopped and called 10,000 angels. He willingly died because of his love. He was our Goel, our Redeemer. Did the fourth requirement get met in Jesus? Was there anything in Jesus that would have disqualified him? Well, according to this great verse in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, Jesus. Holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect payment, the ultimate redeemer for our sins. Ruth and Naomi got their goel, and the story ends happily. And for everyone who knows Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, you've got the guarantee of a happy ending to your story. For you see, 2,000 years ago, the ultimate goel stepped from his throne in glory and said, I'll redeem. And in his own blood, he paid the price for our sins. He died on the cross, he rose again, and he offers the free gift of eternal life. And folks, I guess the warning is, there is no other option. It says in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You've got one shot. You've got one Goel. You've got one kinsman redeemer. And that's it. Is he yours? In this audience this morning, I would hope that every one of you have the absolute confidence and assurance that if you were to die today, you'd spend eternity in heaven because Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. But there might be one person here today who's yet to understand that, who might still be trying through sheer luck, your good looks, <laughs> your uh, baptism certificate, your, um, your religious ways to maybe earn God's favor. And I'm here to tell you this morning, give it up because it is hopeless. Just like it was hopeless for Ruth and Naomi to redeem themselves, it's hopeless for you to redeem yourself. But God sent you a Goel, a kinsman redeemer, and his name is Jesus. And I invite you right now to put your trust and faith in Christ. Believe what I've just offered, said. Believe the free offer. The Bible said God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, will not perish but have everlasting life. Will you transfer your trust off of yourself and onto Christ and Christ alone? And folks, in that moment of trust, the Bible says God gives you the free gift of eternal life because the ultimate kinsman redeemer has done all the work, had a secured redemption. Just receive it as a free gift. And folks, when you do, we have the absolute assurance that we have a heavenly Father in heaven 
a sovereign God who is providentially working out his good plan for our life. And nothing will thwart his purposes for you. And nothing will separate you from his love. And when we get to heaven, we're going to shout and sing and rejoice because the, the canvas will be unrolled and all the tangled threads of our life will be revealed. And we will celebrate like we've never celebrated before. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the kindness of your heart to give us this little book of Ruth stuck there in the Old Testament, Ruth book in the Bible, to tell us something about you. Sin and disobedience, it doesn't thwart your purposes. You are a sovereign God, and you've got a plan, and you're unfolding that, and in your kindness and love, you have provided for us in that plan our personal goel, our personal kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for giving us your son. Thank you, Jesus, for making that payment. And thank you, Father, that nothing will separate us from your love. For you to continue that, that tapestry of grace to bring us from our emptiness to fullness in Christ. We're so grateful, Father. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.